Well, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 again. Ephesians chapter 5. As you're turning there, if you're a guest, you have landed in the middle of a series. It's almost like an alien. We're not calling you an alien, but uh, dropping into the middle of, um, of a culture and saying, what, what is going on here? We've been studying what it means to be a godly man and a godly husband, what it means to be uh, a participating member of the family that God has given us in a dutiful way, in a God-honoring way. And we spent about four weeks talking to men, and now we're turning to wives. Uh, I have prayed all morning for the rapture. And I continue to this moment. <laughs> Ephesians 5 verse 22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he may present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. A few years before coming to Kansas City, I was on staff at Grace Community Church in Los Angeles and had the honor and privilege of preaching one Sunday morning. In fact, I was in a series. I had three Sundays in a, Sunday mornings in a row and was doing a series similar to what we're doing here on uh, roles and goals in marriage and the family. Halfway through the sermon, something happened that I've not ever experienced before or since. Now, let me give you the context. I'm in an auditorium. There are 3,000 plus, probably 3,500 people in attendance in that service. And I'm preaching on what it means to be a godly wife. About halfway through, at the exact same time, simultaneously, my guess is anywhere between 700 and 1,000 women stood up and hurried out of the building. Some running. I just began to talk about the biblical responsibilities of a dutiful Christian wife. And women were running out of my sermon. <laughs> I can't begin to tell you 
what went through my mind. It's amazing like when you're preaching how many multiple thoughts you can have at one time. You're thinking, and oh, I need to have coffee with him. I gotta follow up with him. You're preaching. Well, this was one of those times when my mind had about 1,700 thoughts at the same time. The leading thoughts were, okay, what did I say? And so you're trying to say what's on your notes and trying to rewind the tape. What, what did I say to make these women run? And then I, then I thought, well, did I just lose my job? Um, I'm not very handy. I, I don't know what I would do. So I, I was rushing through all the possibilities of my next employment opportunity. Well, here's what happened. During the time, that time, when you checked your children into the nursery and into the children's department, you were handed a pager, a physical pager. And these pagers were given to you in case they needed to find you. You can imagine with a church that seats 3,500 walking in and saying, hey, Mr. Johnson, or hey, uh, so-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, we need you to come. It'd be impossible to find. So you were given this pager. If you needed to be alerted, they would send you a, a message on there to come. And there was a series of messages. messages. One means come. Uh, two means check in between services. There was, but there was one message that was above all, and it was 911, which meant, please come ASAP. There's an emergency. Turns out the system in the middle of my sermon malfunctioned. And all of the women who had these pagers, and a few men, I might add, said 911, and they all went up. And as they began seeing other people running, it just got more exciting, like they thought the building had caved in or something. And they're running out, and I'm trying to preach, going, What did I say? What did I say? <laughs> well, today we begin to look at what it means to be a godly biblical wife. And since we don't have a pager system, if a mass of women get up and run out, well, please don't. I don't think I'm going to finish with the introduction today. Just fair warning. God has created a world that you and I live in that experiences order and hierarchy that he has intended and that he has created. In other words, there are spheres of authority that have been placed by God in every dimension of life. There are three main institutions he has set up that include the authority of people, but are really an overlay of his authority over people through whom he works in these earthly authorities. These institutions are the family, the church, and the state. Now, even in the church and the state, you could expand that out to say even a society and employment. For example, he uses the protection of the state to serve its citizens. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, he uses the protection of elders and a church to serve his bride, the church. He uses the protection of a husband to serve the wife. And yes, he does use the protection and guidance and leadership of an employer for employees. Now, an important note as we begin this study of a woman's role in her family, especially as a wife, because you know the first thing we're going to tackle is the first verse in this passage we read in Ephesians 5, which is the issue of submission. All earthly submission is submission to imperfect leadership. Can we just start right here? All earthly submission 
is ultimately submission to authority that will eventually fail. The only authority in our world, in our universe, in our lives that will not fail is the Lord Jesus, God himself. Every authority that we have on this planet will one day fail you. So depending on submitting to perfect leadership, even as a wife would her husband, is not an option. Because none of us are Jesus But failed leadership does not negate the position of leadership or our responsibility to submit in those categories of leadership that God has ordained. Think about this. Just because there's corruption in politics, does that mean you can disobey and dishonor the government? Can anyone go out here on Mission Road and say, I do not like our local government. I am tired of our governor and senators. I don't like our, 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 our uh, uh, representatives or senators in Washington. I don't like our president. Go on and on. Therefore, I don't have to submit to this red light. That is a government issuance. You do know that the government runs the red lights, don't you? Just run one and see who how that works out for you. It's amazing how there are certain authority constructs in our life that we don't even think. We just submit to without, without rebellion, without causation, without, without deep thought, like a red light. But just because you think there's corruption in your political authorities, does that give you the reason or the right to not submit to the authority that God's put in your life? Of course not. Those of you in athletics or who have been athletes in the past, I was an athlete a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Just because the coach makes a bad call, does that mean you can now disobey and dishonor him? Men, those of you who play football, can you imagine the coach calling a sweep, tackled in the backfield for a loss? He sends the next play in, okay, um, uh, uh, we're going to run a draw this time. And uh, uh, you hear the, the tackle in our system, the, 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 we traded out guards and tackles. He comes in and says, okay, we're going to do, do a draw play. If you don't know what that is, just work with me. And you said, yeah, that's a bad idea. He just called a sweep a minute ago. It didn't work. I got a better idea. Go deep. You don't have the right to do that because you're under authority. Just because a teacher is unfair to you in an assignment. And let's face it, don't we all, looking back at our student years, and if you're a student now, just work with me for a second, feel like teachers are fundamentally unfair in their assignments to us? Wouldn't they just rather give us an A and save us all the trouble? I mean, they don't really want to grade all those papers, do they? Just because your teacher is unfair in an assignment on a test or a test, that doesn't mean you can disobey and dishonor him or her. And the point is simple. Authorities, even when they fail, do not cease to be authorities that God expects us to honor and even to obey in our world and in our life. Listen, we are witnessing, we are witnesses to a seismic shift in our culture right before our eyes in this generation. And the shift is away from honoring the hierarchy of authorities that God has put in our lives. Such that people hate authority. It's natural. It's it's already in our heart to rebel and stiff arm against authority. And when it's most pronounced, men and women cease to resist, uh, continue to resist it. 
Now, just for a moment, I want us to peek at a passage we're going to come back to in the coming weeks. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to look at this just very briefly, just for some context. Some context. Because where we're headed, I'm not sure how far we'll get today, but we'll get there next week, is the trusting submission of a godly wife, just as we've also looked at the loving leadership of a godly husband in Ephesians 5. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter issues a, a, a warning and issues an a, a admonition, counsel to us on authority. And I want to show you the context of authority in all of our lives out of which we begin to understand the authority structure in a marriage. Look at verse 11. 1 Peter 2, 11. Beloved, I urge you, I admonish you. I'm giving you counsel as aliens and strangers. This is not outer space aliens. These are people who don't belong in this country, in this world. We are aliens as if we don't have citizenship here. Abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the time, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So here's what he's setting up. You need to fight worldly lust and fleshly lusts, and you also need to be a demonstration of godliness to the world. As people begin accusing you of your good deeds, you're going to be a gospel witness. What good deeds might he have in mind? What would Peter be outlining for the church he's writing to in such a way that if you act this way, you should shame the world by your obedience. You should also be a testimony to the world by your obedience. And you should also be an example to the world in how you honor God. What good deeds are you talking about? Next verse. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He gets specific, whether to a king or an emperor, literally, as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And there's what we just picked, left off in verse 12, doing what is right, good deeds. Such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Do you see the connection uh, with verse 12? Our good deeds in actually submitting to the government, honoring the government, will be a testimony. Now, some of you, my patriot friends, are saying, wait, but what if the government is wicked or corrupt, ungodly, executes evil? Can I remind you who Peter's writing to? He's writing to people under Roman rule whose emperor was Nero who was burning Christians after dipping them in tar on a bridge which he had a party on for light. That's the government that Peter is saying be submissive to. So lest we think, hey, we, we can only submit to authorities that we agree with 
We could go on and on through the course of history. The, the English martyrs who were died at the stake. Thomas Cramer who ran to the stake in order to be burned because he said, I'm not going to disobey my death sentence. I'd rather I'll honor God and see him soon. Act as free, man. Verse 16, a new category. But do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a slave of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. There's a maxim to live by. You want a life verse? There's a good one. Servants. Now he shifts groups. Servants. Literally slaves. Be submissive. Same verb as we saw in verse 13. To your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Are you seeing a pattern here? You don't choose to submit to authority because it's always righteous, because it always does what's right, because it always is right. In fact, he goes out of his way to say, even be submissive to those who are unreasonable, Why? Why should we do this, Peter? Verse 19, for this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, if a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, what credit is there if when you sin you are, and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right, you're honorable. You're honoring the authorities in your life and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Peter was reading all of our life stories and said, some of you will end up submitting wives in marriages, men in jobs, all of us in governments. You will end up submitting to authority that fails, but a godly, Godward submission, even to authority that fails, still finds favor with God. This is significant. He adds a little anecdote in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Whoa, what purpose? Back up to verse 20. If you patiently endure suffering, disfavor, treated harshly by doing what is right. If you have, you've been called for this purpose since Christ himself, and fully say, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Why would God do that to me? I'm on his side. Why would he call me to submit to someone, to something in a context where I'm treated unjustly, unfairly, unrighteously? He says, I want you to remember something. Since Christ also suffered, and he adds this footnote for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, Jesus uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him, to God, who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, his wounds, you were healed. Your wounds were healed. Your suffering was cared for. For you were like continually like sheep 
going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Try just for a moment to erase the chapter division there. In the same way, as Christ gives us an example, as slaves or employees submit to their employers or masters who may or may not be righteous, as we submit to governments which may or may not do righteous things, in the same way, you wives, same word, be submissive to your own husbands. Stop right there. We're gonna come back and finish this passage up in just a few weeks. What's the point? Authority, every authority that's a human authority will eventually at some point, either in a minor or major way, either in a small window or over a long period, maybe even a lifetime, all authority will fail us. God knows that. And he says that when we remain submissive in those situations, it brings him pleasure and it brings us good. Well, that is a backdrop. Let me review some comments here that are important. First of all, let me give you two bullet points if you want them. Different ranks and position, having different ranks and positions does not infer superiority or inferiority. Let me explain what I mean. Occupying or having different ranks or positions does not infer superiority or inferiority. Here it is in who we are. We are all made in the image of God, employers and employees, government officials and citizens, husbands and wives. We are all equal before God as image bearers. We bear his image. Romans 2.11, there's no partiality with God. Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. That's not talking about roles. That's talking about our position in the gospel. And we've looked at some words that are gonna be really important in the next few weeks that I, I just want you to learn. I know this is review for most of you, but maybe introductory for, for others. There are two interpretive schemes for looking at male and female roles in the world and specifically in marriage and even in the church. That's complementarianism and egalitarianism. You remember those? Complementarianism is from complete, that the, the wife was created in Genesis 2 to complete the one flesh relationship that God created with the husband and wife, it means that men and women are created equal in essence, both in the image of God, but distinct in their roles. It was God's design in the creation, and God uses the analogy of the Trinity to illustrate that for us. And we'll see that in just a moment. Egalitarianism is another interpretive scheme or even an application scheme which says that God created male and female equal in all respects. Little or no limitations or distinctions between men and women in marriage and in the church, as you've been reading in the paper, even on the athletic fields. Our church and this series takes a decidedly complementarian position as is explained here in verse 22, wives be subject or submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. 
There's theology in this. The reason that, the, that God calls women into this kind of relationship in a Christian marriage, as a, as a Christian in marriage, let me say it that way, is because verse 23 says, the husband is the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. In other words, we do, ladies, you do as Christ. Christ submits to the Father. We submit to Christ. There's a submission that's going on in the Trinity, a submission that's going on on this earth, and it's not muddied up in any way into who we are, just how we respond in our roles. Christ is the head of the church. We all submit to him as Christians. And the husband is the head of the wife. A wife is to follow and submit to him. This key word submit or be subject to, as it's rendered in the New American Standard, has to do with subordination of someone in an ordered way or to another person in position, specifically in authority or in rank. It's actually a military term. Order and position. We'll get into this next week, but please note that the Apostle Paul is not urging every woman to submit to every man. This is unique in a marriage. To their own husbands they are to submit. He goes into great detail elsewhere, 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Just as Jesus submits to the father, a wife submits to her husband. And just as, as Christ submits to the father, we all submit to Christ. It's not based on culture, but on creation. Paul continues for... Man does not originate from the woman, but woman from the man. And this is 1 Corinthians eleven eight, verse 9. For indeed, a man was, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Now, don't you think wrongly about that, that you know, man needed all sorts of uh, assistance, so he created the woman. Actually, man was incomplete without the woman. I see that every day of my life. 1 Timothy Chapter 2, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet just in a teaching role over men. And the point of this, uh, in, in this context is, Paul says, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. In other words, these roles go back to creation, not to culture. And remember, there was a greater cultural gap between Paul and the creation than Paul and us. So we'll come into understanding that a little bit more next week in the following. A second kind of introductory point I want you to remember is that we, we, have to, we have to be careful not to gravitate to the extremes, not to caricature the extremes. We, we talked about this with the men as, as a, two ditches on each side of a road. And if you don't stay in the middle of the road, you'll fall off on one side of the ditch. For the man, you could fall off on the side of a domineering authoritarianism where, where you're overbearing in your leadership. You don't honor your wife as what Peter calls her, a co-heir of the grace of Christ. You're just a mean ogre. That's not what we're called to be. On the other side, the other ditch is passive inattention, flattening out headships so that the unique burden of leadership is given to your wife and not you willingly letting her or pushing her to take your place as leader of the home. Those are two extremes that have to be avoided. 
And Paul tells us here that we do that by looking to Christ, and that's review of what we talked about just a few weeks ago with the men. But, ladies, let me encourage you that there are also two extremes that you need to be aware of as we study this issue of a wife's submissive position in a marriage. Two extremes a Christian wife must avoid as she seeks to be biblically submissive to her husband. These are two ditches on, on both sides of the road that you need to avoid. The first is competitive authoritarianism. Competitive authoritarianism. This is simply competing with your husband for headship and leadership in the home. And for some, we'll talk about this next week, we can't talk about the women without talking about the husbands. For some, this is easier than for others because your husband is not giving leadership in the home and someone has to. And we'll talk about that. But when you begin competing and you, you look at this flattening of your relationship with your husband where you're both kind of co-equals and in, in terms of authority in the home, that can be a problem. Yes, you both have authority over your, your children. Yes, you both have authority to confront each other over sin. But there is a, a hierarchy that God has commanded that we observe and enjoy. So you want to avoid competing with your husband to be the authority. The other side, the other ditch is passive, capti- cap- let me say it again, passive capitulation. Passive capitulation. This is complying, submitting, capitulating by abandoning your wisdom and your opinion. Submission does not believe, that does not mean you set aside your opinion or set aside your wisdom. Far from it. Any man who's godly and follows the Lord and loves his wife knows that the greatest source of wisdom in his life, in his marriage, and in his family is his wife. So as we navigate through this passage next week and the following week, it's going to take us two weeks to talk about what submission means and frankly what it doesn't mean. I want you to be able to navigate between competing authoritarianism, trying to take his place, and passive capitulation, just giving up and, and um, uh, not offering your opinion, not offering your, your wisdom. Now, what we're about to do in studying this is, is not easy. Martha Peace, in her excellent book, The Excellent Wife, says this, quote, pastors often avoid the issue of submission because the subject is so volatile. Yes, you're right, Martha. (laughs) And then those who do address it, she says, make it more palatable with with a sugar coating of some sort of emphasis of mutual submission of the husband and the wife instead of clearly teaching the wife's responsibility, end quote. Alexander Strzok says this, The word submission can hardly be used in our culture without misunderstanding and strong disdain. It is loaded with negative, provocative connotations. Yet submission is a biblical word and a Christian virtue. Let me say it again. Submission is a biblical word and a Christian virtue of men and women. And he says this, we cannot avoid it. So can we begin by just having some family time just around the spiritual fireplace for a second?
Can we be honest about why this subject is so sensitive? There have been horrible, terrible, anti-biblical atrocities and wrongs committed by men against women, even their wives, throughout history and even in our own generation. And there are neglects and missteps by every Christian husband in this church right now with me at the forefront. Yet, I think in our efforts to correct those terrible wrongs, we have to be careful and mindful not to disregard God's truth and design for the sexes. Strout goes on and says, Biblical submission does not eliminate the biblical principles of justice and fairness and love and kindness and compassion that every Christian, male and female, should practice in every aspect of life and marriage. So it's critical as we begin this discussion of a wife's role and responsibility by reminding ourselves that complementarians should be the champions of exalting women. We don't put them down and put them in their place. Men, we ought to be the champions in our culture of valuing them, cherishing them, loving them, exalting them, promoting them, caring for them, looking out for their dignity, their justice, and their respect. Our world is at war with women. But that war can't help, can't cause us to look at the scriptures and say, yes, but. Lived out correctly, godly husbands should draw submission from their wives like a willing, adoring, doting magnet because they're so cared for and protected and promoted. And the woman who is married to an ungodly man or an even an unbeliever, two weeks from today, we're gonna to look at that very issue. God still says there is as a submission you can have to him that is winsome to him, holy before the Lord, and a light to the world. It's important that we define what submission is not as we begin defining what it is. I think the best way to define what we don't mean by submission is very simple. It's very simple. Does the wife come home and cower and, 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 and say, yes, sir, and, and my Lord to her husband? Well, it doesn't work out at my house. I can assure you that. No, she's not to do that. Is she the, the slave who you walk in, pop off your feet, get in the recliner, recliner, lean back, grab the remote control and say, Cheetos, now. That's not submission. Can I remind you? That submission includes, this is our foundation we're going to look at. We're going to we'll get into the text next week. This is the foundation, this is the context that submission must operate in a Christian couple. 
Now, if you're, I, I know we have, we, have, we have sweet ladies among us who are married to men who don't honor and serve the Lord. Let me just encourage you. We are, Peter spends six verses on this. We're gonna get there in two weeks. But for those of you who are Christians, think about the one another's. Does a wife's submissiveness take this out of play in how she deals with her husband? Contribute to one another's needs, Romans 12, 13. No. Spur one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews 10, 24. Should the wife, because she's submissive, say, well, there's areas that you need to grow, but I'm gonna be quiet because I'm submissive. No. Women, ladies, wives, you are to be the most corrective force of the Spirit of God in our lives. He uses you more than anyone else. We're to love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Accept one another. Admonish one another. A submissive wife does not give up the invitation that God extends to her to correct and admonish her husband. Be united with one another. Serve one another through love. This is such a sweet relationship that believers have with each other and the most intimate relationship two believers have is in marriage. Show forbearance to one another in love. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted to one another. Forgiving one another. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I don't know if we should take that as, as wives. You should just go home and sing to your husbands. But only if you should sing to your wife's husbands. That's another time, right? Aaron would like that. Teaching one another. Teaching one another. Have you ever noticed that that's not in any way regulated by husband or wife, male or female? Teach one another. Oh, we'll get to the point in a few weeks where uh, women are not to teach men in the context of the church. Taking authority in a church position. But does that mean a woman does not teach her husband? Can I just share with you? My wife is home sick today, so it's, it's easy to, to brag on her without her being here and knowing that when I come home, she'll say, stop. She's probably watching on live stream, so I'm going to get in double trouble. <laughs> Can I just confess to you the greatest lessons of my life, the most practical insights I've ever learned from my Bible, have been from my sweet wife, Kim. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Help one another. Be patient with one another. Women, please be patient with us if we're trying to be a godly man. Be hospitable to one another. Be sympathetic toward one another. Restore one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be humble toward one another. Look out for one another's interests. Why go over the one another's list? Because these are the foundations of Christian relationships. And if you're two Christians living under the same Lord in the same household, those all apply to you and submission does not wipe those away. You, you cannot look at submission in your relationship with your husband as a second tier position without influence, without wisdom, without opinion without relationship, without communication. It's a shame that we have to take such, go to such lengths to define what is not before we can even turn to what is because when we look at the world's caricature of what we call submission, 
They look at abuse. They look at the Me Too movement. They look at domineering husbands in that side of the ditch. And you know what? Some of them are, those criticisms are, are right. God's word does not cease to be God's word in a godless society, however, does it? And just some forewarning. If we at Mission Road Bible Church pour our lives as husbands into being the kind of man who's worthy of such submission, who's followable, if we as wives understand biblical submission and exercising the one another's and the roles and goals that God has given us, if we really are serious about this, you're going to need to buckle up because that's going to draw the criticism of the world, the ire of the world, the misunderstanding of the world. But as we saw in, in Peter's words, it finds favor with God. So full disclosure, that was the introduction that I wrote over the last three or four days. And then I, that was all supposed to come before point one, which we're not going to get to today. But let me just show you where we're going. Uh, Ginger, you can put those up. This is looking at next week, three clarifying insights about a Christian wife's submission to her husband. You don't have to write this down. We're going to look at this in, the, in next week. Uh, it's motivated by submission to Christ. It's illustrated by submission to Christ. And it's demonstrated by submission to to Christ. In other words, Ephesians chapter 5 is all connected that if you understand your relationship with Christ, you will understand the implications and applications of what it means to be a godly husband and a godly wife. It's all rooted in the gospel. Leave the gospel out of a Christian marriage and all you have is morality. Unbelievers can have moral relationships and moral marriages. We want to be men and women who understand how to honor Christ. And let me tell you, it will, 1 Peter 2, 20, find favor with God when we understand submission properly. So what are you taking away? First of all, submission is not a second tier commandment. All of us are commanded to submit at some level. All of us, all Christians are submissive to the Lord through human institutions. Secondly, wives have a unique role in being submissive to their own husbands. And this is not submitting to an overlord or a domineering person who's going to put you in danger. We will be specific about that next week. There are, we're going to give you, I'm going to give you a list of areas that you should never submit to a husband. Mainly that he causes or asks you to sin. And another takeaway is if you are a single man or woman, the understanding these issues before you're in a relationship without the emotions of the relationship will give you an objective application of who to be without being in the stress and strain of trying to do correction and you can do preparation. So all of this is applicable. Let's say you're older, more mature. Let's, let's say that, more mature. Kids out of the house, maybe grandchildren, maybe great-grandchildren. Boy, this becomes the stuff of our prayers. This is how we pray for our children and their wives and their husbands. All because the gospel is precious to us. Can I just remind you 
We cling to a God who loves us so much, he gave his son as a substitute for us to receive the due punishment of our errors and sins on the cross. He gave us the gift of his son to pay for the wrath that he would rightly met out on us. And he paid for that on the cross. He rose from the dead and offers us eternity with him. Because we know that, that gives us the context, the foundation, the principles, and the example to live in a godly marriage or, and or to live godly in a marriage. Hear the difference? To live in a godly marriage, which is our goal, or to live godly in a marriage, even if one of the parties is not pursuing the same values that you are.